Well, it's, it's great to be back here, up here, and having the opportunity to preach. It was also great to sit under the preaching of both Peyton and Brett as well. Um, I remember in the, like when I was the early days of preaching, and it's not like I've been preaching for a decade or anything, so I'm still learning tons as well, but I just remember like taking like weeks to prepare for one sermon, and I remember a good friend of mine asking me, how are you ever going to like plant a church? Like, how are you going to preach every week? And uh, because it like you get done with one and the next one comes fast, right? And Peyton was just telling me uh, before the service, he's like, thanks so much for doing this week in and week out. And, but there's this reality, like it, it's tough. It's tough for someone to come up here and to do this. And like if we ask for volunteers, there's probably not going to be a lot of hands that are going to be raised to do this kind of thing. And so I'm really grateful for you guys doing this. So thanks for serving us as a church so well and, and uh, loving us in this way. Uh, the passages that they preached are actually pretty fun passages uh, about Philip and his interactions with one with a magician and one with an Ethiopian eunuch. And what we saw in those passages uh, was the continual spread of the gospel. Okay, and what, what we mean by this is the, the advancement of the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. More people hearing about this and more people being changed by this. But it was happening with selective people, right? A magician and a eunuch, people who have very different experiences and lives. People who had different perspectives about God, but people who needed Jesus. They, they were both very far from God, but they were both needing Jesus in a very similar way. And what we're going to find today is, uh, in the story that we're looking at today, is um, that gospel advancement continues. And we're looking at a really foundational story within the book of Acts today, and that is the conversion of Saul. So what we're going to do today is we're going to actually break this story up into two different chunks. So I'm going to read basically the first half of it, and we're going to talk through some of that, and then we'll read the last half of it as well. So Acts 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Okay, so this story is revolving around an individual named Saul. Now, we were introduced to Saul a number of weeks ago, and so as a refresher, he was one of Jesus, or he was not, one of Jesus' followers stood in front of the religious leaders of Israel, and he told all of these religious leaders about their guilt before God, as well as their need to trust in Jesus. And the religious leaders didn't like this at all. In fact, they hated Stephen, who was Jesus' follower, for saying these things to them. And the result of their anger was rage. And ultimately, their rage manifested in them killing Stephen, murdering him, stoning him to death. And so we read back in Acts 8, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So that was a chapter ago, but we're picking up the story here after a number of things have happened in the book of Acts. And Saul is still filled with murderous rage, and he is hurling murderous threats at anyone who is attached to Jesus. And notice how this is explicit in these verses. He's so enraged at followers of Jesus that he is breathing murder, actually breath of murder, breathing threats against them. So this is some next-level anger that he has against Jesus' followers. But this is also explicit about the direction of his rage. Okay, so it says that it is against the disciples of the Lord. Okay, so we've, we've seen this numerous times in the book of Acts already. How Jesus' death and resurrection is offensive. And it's offensive because it's saying everyone is guilty. Jesus hanging on a cross is outing all of us. It's saying you and I are guilty. All these religious leaders who thought they were doing these impressive things for God. It's saying they are guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. So the gospel is offensive in certain ways. This is also why Saul was raging. So Saul then shows his commitment to the system of Jewish faith, and he goes all the way to the top of the religious system. He goes to the high priest, and he asks the high priest for legal permission to find anyone who is following Jesus, teaching about Jesus, trusting in Jesus, that he would be able to find them, people who were associated with what was known as the way or referred to as the way, and then to take those people and to bind them up and to bring them to Jerusalem, to put them on trial, or who knows what cruelty he may have planned for these folks. Because we've already seen his crazy rage demonstrated. We know that he'd recently watched over and approved the killing of Stephen, one of Jesus' followers. 
So Saul is on this journey to expose followers of Jesus and ultimately to make them extinct. And as he's walking to the city of Damascus where he intends to carry out his murderous plans, he is knocked to the ground by light. So he didn't have this great story, right? Like he's, he's on this uh, journey and then like someone jumps him or this group of people jump him, right? Like and then like I suffered in this way. No, he got knocked to the ground by light. Okay, that, that one's not going to sell really well for a lot of people, right? But, but I think even in this, what we see demonstrated is that the way of Jesus is filled with grace. It's filled with grace. The way in which Jesus is confronting him in this way. And it's significant in other ways as well, the fact that it's, it's light. Because Jesus has referred to himself previously as the light of the world and the light who came down from heaven. So Jesus has described himself in this way. So in a sense, Saul is being blinded by goodness, right? He's being blinded by too much goodness. What Jesus then says to Saul is really enlightening. He says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And right after this, Jesus is really clear. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So think about this. Has Saul been persecuting Jesus? From our vantage point, it seems like Saul has been fixated on Jesus' church on the followers of Jesus. Those are the people that Saul seems to hate. Those are the people that he's arresting, the people that he has killed, that he wants to murder. So what is meant by Jesus when he accuses Saul of persecuting himself? So I want to highlight this because I think it drives home one of the most comforting realities of the New Testament. Jesus is emphasizing the nearness he has to his church. People are not just inanimate objects to Jesus. His church is not a bunch of unknowns to him. What Jesus is saying is that his church, his people, in a sense, are himself. The people who are Jesus' church are part of Jesus himself. And this can help us understand other parts of the Bible when it talks about Jesus' church being his body. So Jesus is the head, and then his church is the body. But they are all one together. So this isn't just cutesy language or an illustration to give a sense of Jesus. Jesus is exemplifying the fact that he is connected intimately, closely to his people. At the beginning of the book, the final book in the Bible, Revelation, Jesus' church is described as lampstands, like light posts, in the world, okay? But Jesus then is described as being in the midst of those lampstands and as one who walks among 
the lampstands. This imagery of Jesus being deeply connected to his church is pervasive in the New Testament. We see it here in Acts. We see it in Revelation and many parts in between as well. Jesus loves his church. And what this means for Jesus' church, for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, who have been saved by him, is that Jesus is not far off. He's not distant from us. Jesus intends to be connected to us. He loves his people dearly. He knows your struggle. And I know that the idea of struggle can mean many different things for us. But he knows your personal struggle. He knows your specific struggle. And he cares deeply. He desires to walk with you. So this can be really comforting, but let's not think of it as consumers. Let's not demand of God. God, I want you to be closer. We can, we can express that, but let's not demand of him. Or you need to be this to me. Show yourself in this specific way. Let's let the reality that the most powerful being in the world, that he knows us and loves us personally, affect us and change us and comfort us. Now, maybe he doesn't know us or isn't loving us in the way we think we need it, but he knows us and he loves us in the ways that we actually do need it. And the hope then is that this truth will humble us to the extent that we might know and love others in ways that reflect Jesus to them, that remind others who Jesus is to us, what Jesus has done and is doing and will do for us in our own lives. So this is what Jesus is doing to Saul as he floors him on his way to Damascus. This encounter with Jesus is intended to shape him, to mark him in a profound way. And Saul does have a profound experience. He hears a voice from heaven. He is blinded by a light. And this isn't insignificant, the fact that he is blinded, okay? So God could have handled this whole encounter in a lot of different ways, right? He could have broken his leg. Right? He could have paralyzed Saul. He could have caused sickness to come upon him. But why blindness? This is another one of those physical examples that is pointing to a greater spiritual reality. God is helping Saul to see things as they are. So Saul sees wrongly. Okay? He is blinded spiritually. And so God is exposing his spiritual blindness. This is happening physically, but it's demonstrating a spiritual truth within Saul. Also, Saul isn't the only one there, right? He has some traveling partners. 
and they are astounded by what's going on here. It says here in this verse that they are speechless. So they hear a voice. Something's going on here. They don't see. They're not experiencing this in the same way that Saul is experiencing this. So this this experience may have impacted them in profound ways, then or in the days afterwards. But what's happening here is specific to Saul. And this is something that's true about the way in which God does work in us or save us. He saves us individually, right? So me being a pastor, my kids aren't saved because they're children of the pastor. God has to come to each of us and save us out of our individualism and into something greater than ourselves, into his church. Okay, Acts uh, 9, let's pick it up in verse 10 now. I'm going to read the rest of these verses. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So one of the pictures that I really love in these verses is how we see God working in a variety of ways. And in the lives of a variety of people. Right? So he's coming. And this is illustrating God's sovereignty, right? Like the fact that he has supreme power and authority over all things and all people. So we see him coming to Saul, and he is speaking to Saul. But then he's also coming to Ananias as well, and he's speaking to him as well. And he's working in meaningful ways in the lives of numerous people. And and we're just getting this story, right? But But this should be a comfort and encouragement to us. God works in the lives of people. And it's not just like it's the pastor or the person standing up here. God works in the lives of his church, of all of his people. He is a sovereign 
good, loving God. So God calls Ananias to go to Saul and to restore his sight. Okay, and Ananias balks at this proposal. So he's heard about Saul. He's heard about his reputation. And he's like, I don't know about this. And, and I really appreciate the freedom that we see in Ananias, right? He doesn't hesitate to voice his concern to God. It's not like he feels like God's just got his thumb on him and he can't raise his hand and say, yeah, but what about, right? Like there's freedom there. And this communicates to us the freedom of the gospel, the freedom found in grace. It speaks to the kind and gentle nature of God. God's not intimidated by our questions. There's no questions we can't throw at God. I also find it insightful then that God doesn't relent either. In this case, he doesn't ease the circumstances. He doesn't even alleviate the concern of Ananias. Though God does mention how Saul is going to be the one experiencing suffering, right? So maybe there's an indirect answer there. But, but he doesn't come out and just say to Ananias, no, don't worry, you won't suffer. He doesn't say that he comes back to Ananias and he calls him to go in faith. And he just reasserts that call. He says, go. And then what does Ananias do? He goes in faith. We can so often find ourselves like a young child who doesn't get what they want. Right? And, then, and then they keep retorting with hypothetical scenarios. But what about this kind of thing? Right? It would have been really easy for Ananias, but, but what about if he kills me? But what about my family and how will they be affected by this? What about if he lies, if he's lying and he's actually not who he says he is? But he doesn't. He proceeds in faith. God has spoken, and his faith in Jesus compels him to walk in this way of obedience. So Ananias approaches Saul, and notice how he addresses him. He says, Brother Saul. This indicates a reality about Saul. God has saved him. Ananias and Saul are brothers in Jesus. Whatever Ananias is feeling, right, he's pushing through that. God has said he's my family. I'm going to refer to him as family, and I'm going to treat him like family. They are together, Jesus' church now. And this speaks to the whole salvation experience that Paul or that Saul was experiencing, right? Like he is putting faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit has been given to him. We read here then that he was baptized as well. So there's this whole salvation experience that Saul is going through. 
And this part of the story ends with Saul doing something amazing. He was going to Damascus to arrest and kill the followers of Jesus. Instead, what he does is he stays with them and spends time acclimating himself to his new family, getting to know them. This is such a profound transformation. So the man who came with letters to annihilate God's people now begins a journey that will lead to him writing many letters of encouragement to the very people he once sought to destroy. What happened on the road to Damascus wasn't a fluke. Something profound occurred there. Saul was changed. A blind man was made to see. Saul was saved. He was spiritually dead, and now he has been made spiritually alive. What's alarming is that most any person that saw Saul or knew Saul in those days would have identified him as spiritually alive before this. Look at how he followed the rules. Look at how zealous he was for the law. But it doesn't matter what all of these other people would say. What matters is what Jesus says. And ultimately for us, are we trusting in Jesus? Or are we trusting in what other people say about us? So the Bible gives repeated pictures of salvation. This is what God is doing. He comes to seek and to save. His project is a salvation project. So what I want to do is I want to consider one aspect of Saul's salvation. And that is this, that Saul's salvation was surprising. It was unexpected in a number of ways. First of all, as I've just mentioned, it was surprising in that Saul needed it. Most people thought his life was committed to helping people being saved. Or or maybe a better way to say it was forcing people to be saved. Really, that's what it seems like he was doing. But, But overall, he appeared more spiritually astute than others. But what's really surprising is how Saul reflects back on this. This was a man who seemed wholeheartedly loyal to God. But after this experience, Saul is going to go on to say this about himself. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So what Saul is saying later on in his life is that I am the greatest sinner to walk the earth. This is a massive turnaround in his life. And I want to contend this is where everyone needs to get, is where Saul got eventually To be saved by Jesus is to come to this realization. 
Saul can and should say this about himself, that he is the greatest sinner because he knows himself better than anyone else. But this is true for all of us. We can all say this about ourselves because we have a better idea of the depth of our own sin than we do of anybody else. And this even includes, like if we open up social media and we learn about someone who is a murderer, it even includes that we are a greater sinner than that person who we can publicly see has done this, at least in our culture's eyes, this great sin. So we might know their one sin, but if we're honest with ourselves and we take Jesus' word seriously, we have to admit that we also have angrily murdered many people in our own hearts. I don't know how often that's happened in your life, but I have a sense of it in my life. The reality is we are all the worst of sinners. And that is the conclusion, the realization we all need to come to. So Saul's salvation was surprising in that way. His salvation was also surprising in that he wasn't looking for it. Right? It came out of nowhere. It was actually the last thing that he was looking for. So, We don't climb a ladder to get to God. We don't find God. God finds us. And this is a demonstration of his grace. God works in many ways that we would not choose in and of our own selves. He works in many ways that we would not expect. The salvation of Saul is also surprising in that God would choose to save him. This is like God choosing to save one of his worst enemies. Why wouldn't God just be done with him? Why wouldn't God take vengeance on him and kill him, give him what he deserves? This is what he has done to God's followers in this. We're seeing Jesus show kindness to the oppressor, which is offensive. It's offensive, but it becomes really good news for anyone who comes to the realization that we are the worst sinner, that in our sin we have persecuted Jesus, just like Saul did as well. Because I think a lot of us we'd look at our own lives and say, I'm not persecuting Jesus. But what we learn is that our sin is persecution of Jesus. Okay? And so this becomes really good news when we grasp the weightiness of our own sin. And I have to think, this is also why Ananias didn't persist in his objections to go to Saul. He understood that he, like Saul, was undeserving of forgiveness. He had received grace. He realized he was more like Saul than he was different than him. So Jesus, grabbing hold of us, 
in surprising, unexpected ways changes us profoundly. And the gospel cannot help but do this in us and to us. It will happen. The gospel is that good that it will profoundly shape us and change us continually. Not all at once. It's going to happen throughout our lifetimes. But it will continue to do this. Yes, because we live in our sinful flesh, it will come through fits and starts. But profound, noticeable change will happen as Jesus takes control of our lives. So I just want to ask us a few questions. Where are we at with this this morning? Or where have you been recently? Do you view yourself as Saul did? Do you understand that you are, by your own estimation, the worst sinner? Is your life marked by grace? Do other people encounter grace, forgiveness, through you, through your life? Does Jesus control you? How do you make your decisions day in and day out? What role does Jesus say, does His Holy Spirit have in your life? Or do we just charge through life thinking this seems like the best thing and not considering, not asking for God to work, to guide, to lead us? What do we think about sin? Do we understand that grace forgives sin? It doesn't excuse sin. I think this is a really big distinction we need to make. Grace does not excuse sin. Grace will cause us to hate sin. And yes, our sinful flesh will be drawn back to it. But if Jesus saves us, we're engaged in this battle of putting to death the thing that seeks to destroy us. Grace does not excuse sin. Grace forgives sin. So where are you at with this? Where is your heart? Peyton prayed at the beginning of our service that our hearts would be softened. In what ways do you need the gospel to be massaged into your heart so that hardness would be turned into softness towards Jesus. So we end our sermons with gospel application. Okay? We need to hear the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. You don't need a list of to-dos. That's bad news. You need to hear good news. So I have one point of gospel application for us today, and that is that the gospel marks people. Saul was the least deserving of God's kindness. He was a man marked by the harshness of religion as a contrast to the beauty of the gospel. 
Saul was someone who was feared by many people, both his supporters and his opponents feared him. The gospel made him into someone who was beloved by those who knew him. Saul was someone who before Jesus made people sacrifice their lives. But the gospel would so profoundly change him that he would give of himself sacrificially throughout his life until he died sacrificially as well. And all of this was occurring so that people would know Jesus. Sacrificial love, kindness, gentleness. These are priorities for Jesus' church. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 reads, this is what it looks like as we're being changed and changed by God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There are many things in life that we might want to be good at or be known for. These are the things that Jesus' church are known for. These are the marks we see in Saul that are indicative of a life powerfully changed by Jesus. And so, where these lack, if we don't see these in our own lives, let's not just white-knuckle it and say, I've got to start doing all these things to change myself. Let's pull back. Let's honestly assess what we are trusting in that is not Jesus. Because there will be something there. We are trying to make ourselves into something, to do something, to be something, rather than trusting in Jesus to shape, to form, and to mark our lives in the way that he desires to do so.